For your marvelous and amazing love, we thank you, God, for that love that permeates our heart, that draws us to you, that saves and delivers us and gives us a real and tangible hope. So, God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. You know, I think it's uh, very appropriate that we sing about God's love on Valentine's Day. Uh, it's a perfect time to sing about God's love. And speaking of Valentine's Day, I had a friend of mine that uh, when he heard I was speaking today, he asked me if I could tell a few Valentine's jokes. And uh, I'm happy to oblige him. So uh, do you know what farmers get their wives on Valentine's Day? They give them hogs and kisses. That's what they give them. <laughs> That's right. And uh, French chefs, well, they give their wives a hug and a quiche. <laughs> now, I've also heard that skunks celebrate Valentine's Day. I don't know if you knew this or not, but it's true. You know, they're very sentimental. So, yeah. And I don't know if you heard about the romance in the fish tank. Yeah, it was a case of guppy love. So, yeah. But um bum all right. <laughs> so now that I've totally lost all of your respect, I'm going to try to tie this into the message today somehow on a watch. Here we go. So today we're talking about how to become like Jesus, and there is no better way for us to express our love for him than to desire and to train and do all we can to become like him. And that's really the point of what our salvation is all about anyway. You know, it's God's will that we become like Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification is a fancy word, but really what it boils down to is it's the whole idea of transformation. It's the process where we cooperate with God to become like Jesus. And so let's get started. I want to encourage you to take your message notes out there of your uh, program and grab those and follow along. And if you have a Bible, we're going to look at the passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you that uh, anytime you come here to Twin Cities, grab a Bible out here in the lobby. You can borrow it. You can keep it. We just want you to have a Bible, and we want you to read it. So go ahead and grab one of those as, as you come in. Now, as we begin this passage in Colossians, I think it's important for us to really kind of consider where it's coming from. Now, see, the Apostle Paul wrote this book to Colossians in A.D. 60 while he was under house arrest in Rome for sharing the gospel. Now, he'd never met the Colossians before. Uh, he wrote this letter to them because he'd heard that there was a church that had been started there. But he'd also heard that there was confusion about Jesus and that many of the people, uh, you know, they had mixed their former pagan beliefs. There was something called Gnosticism going on, you know, this separation of spirit and body. And he wanted them to know that Jesus wasn't just a spirit, but he was God that had come in the flesh. And so he wrote this letter to help them know the true Jesus and also to disciple them. And that's what makes this passage so important and key is because we get this little window to peer into to see just how Paul helped people become like Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Paul told them is this. He said, set your focus on Jesus and heaven. Set your focus on Jesus and heaven. So we can ask, why is it important to set our focus on Jesus and heaven? Well, the Bible tells us 
that when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, that something amazing happens that I don't think we truly appreciate. It says that we become completely transformed into something new. Paul describes this in Galatians 2, 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, did you catch that? He's saying that we're united with Jesus and we share his life. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 tells us that the one who joins themselves to the Lord is one spirit with him. 2 Peter 1, 4 says that believers are partakers of the divine nature. Now, I don't know about you, but every single time that I read these verses, it just blows my mind. You see, in this union with Christ, we've died We've been buried and we've been resurrected into a new life. Our old life is gone. It's dead. That's what he said. Our old life is dead and our only life is found in Jesus. He is our very life. And so Paul writes this in Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about these things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Wow. Now... Although we still kind of walk around on this earth, you know, Ephesians 2, 6 tells us that spiritually we are already citizens of heaven and seated with Christ. And did you know that you are an extraterrestrial? <laughs> it's true because 1 Peter 2, 11 tells us that we are aliens and strangers on this earth. You see, Jesus and everything that's important to us is in heaven, and that's why our focus needs to be there, and we shouldn't get tangled up in this earth. And so practically speaking, how do we do that? Well, one of the things we can do is to set your mind on who Jesus is and what he did for you. You see, it's important that we take control of our mind, because that's where sin and temptation comes and attacks us, right? Isn't it true? It attacks our mind. So it's like grabbing hold of the reins of a horse, right, and, and helping us steer clear. Because sin and temptation attack us, we need to take our thoughts captive and get them in the right direction. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so as I was thinking about this, what is it that we can focus on Jesus and it's in a helpful way? I want to give you three suggestions, three different focus points that maybe you could begin with. And the first is to focus on Jesus as Savior. And maybe you would read and meditate on the, the whole time that he went through in his trial and his crucifixion. And his death on the cross. And Luke 23, that whole chapter is tremendous for that. 
to dialogue with Jesus and walk through that with him and read it. And, and in, it just invites a spirit of worship and gratitude. And it's such a great way to battle temptation when you figure and really dig into what God did and what Jesus did for us on the cross. The second is to, to think about Jesus as teacher. You see, one of the things that Jesus did when he called these people to him is he taught them. And, and one of the great places he taught them about character and about living in, in the kingdom life is in Matthew chapter 5 in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, and just to interact with Jesus in these principles and talk about character with him. And a third area of focusing on Jesus is Jesus as Lord and King. And Revelation chapter 5 is a great picture of Jesus in his glorified state as Lord and King of all. And when we think about that and meditate upon that and focus on that, it helps us overcome anxiety and worry because we know that we are more than conquerors in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, setting our mind on Jesus, it helps to saturate our soul deeply with worship and with gratitude and with grace. And when we do that, we find ourselves filled with his love and his peace. And it really helps align our priorities, which is our next point. And that's that we need to prioritize your life through the lens of eternity. Prioritize your life through the lens of eternity. You know, as citizens of heaven, you know, for, for us to prioritize our life based on this life here on earth, it's kind of like the Queen of England moving into a room at the Motel 6. It just doesn't make any sense. This isn't our home. We're just passing through. And so this ought to help us have a view to view all things through the lens of eternity, through the lens of Jesus' eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Is eternal. Now, seeing things through the lens of eternity isn't necessarily easy when the world's just up all in our face. It's what we deal with. It's constantly barraging us. And so it's important for us to really pause, to take a moment and, and to evaluate and look at our life and, and consider, you know, are the ways that, that the, the, the time that God's given us, the, the talents, the resources, the relationship, you know, all these things that God's entrusted to us. Are we really investing those in eternal things? Because there's great, important value when we value eternity over this world. Next, Paul tells us that we need to deal directly and definitively with sin. The new life that God gives us, you know, this exciting new powerful life is, is 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 powerful and yet we still have to deal with sin and though even you know sin's not our master anymore although you know it's always chasing after us trying to tell us what to do trying to pounce on us and and trying to get advantage of us when we're not connected to jesus colossians 3 5 through 9 says this <laughs> paul says so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. 
because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior, slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. You know, Paul's really direct here. I mean, really direct. He's saying, you know, we're not to play around with sin or snuggle up to it or tolerate sin. We have to purge it, get rid of it, and put it to death. You know, sin is like, honestly, it's kind of like a turkey vulture. You know, the, yesterday I was looking out my window, and, and the, these turkey vultures are just soaring through the air, and they're going in circles, and you know what they're doing. They're looking for the weak and the vulnerable and the dying, you know, and then they, they sort of swoop down, and, and they just pounce and devour a strong animal does not need to worry about a turkey vulture. So what is the key to victory over sin? It's to surrender your attitudes, emotions, and actions to God. Our continued struggles with sin, they're, they're kind of like the hot smoldering coals after you put out a fire, you know, where they're still kind of glowing. And it, it's, it's the remnants of our self-will that says to God, Lord, I'm yours, but just don't rule over this area of my life. <laughs> to which Jesus says to us, right? He says, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? And that's why we must embrace surrender as a permanent posture for our life with God. Surrender is the first place that we have to go. It's the key to our battle with temptation and with sin. And we prepare our heart for surrender through two things, confession and repentance. That's how we prepare our heart for surrender. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, you know, confession isn't just, you know, kind of, oh, God, forgive me, you know, for cutting in front of somebody in line. Forgive me for my lying. Forgive me for my lustful thought. Listing everything. Confession at its core is addressing our heart and our heart rebellion before God and getting that straight with him. And then repentance is choosing to come under the rule and reign of God again. Oswald Chambers, uh, I read him every day. And he said this, it's not just a question of giving up sin, but of giving up my right to myself, my natural independence and my self-will. This is where the battle has to be fought. True surrender isn't simply surrendering of our external life, but a surrender of our will. God's purpose is not to perfect me, to make me a trophy in his show, showcase. He's getting me to the place where he can use me. And God can't use me unless I'm surrendered to him. And that leads us to this place where we eliminate sin, pursue righteousness, and invite accountability. You know, when we sin, what we're doing is we're just doing what we want to do. Uh, we're not following God's will in his way, but we're worshiping ourselves rather than God, which is basically idolatry. And uh, when we sin, we don't always look at it this way. We think, it's, well, we did some bad things. But really what it is, it's an affront to God. It's an attack on his character and who he is. 
And you see, God hates sin because it destroys and it kills and it wars against him and his ways. And we get motivated to deal with sin and eliminate it when we're surrendered to God and when we're set on his ways. And then we're ready to kill it and to obliterate it, to assassinate it, and to terminate it. <laughs> Jesus said in, in Matthew 5.29, and this shocked people. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin... Gouge it out and throw it away. Now, his point wasn't to poke your eyes out, but isn't it certainly clear that you should do whatever you can to get rid of sin in your life by the power of God's Spirit? 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. Run. (laughs) Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue living faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. There's some great pieces of advice here. See, the advice is to follow the example of Joseph when Potiphar's wife was clinging to him and wanted him, and he just ran. Get away when sin comes calling. If it's sitting in your house, throw it out. If it's on your phone, delete it. If it's in your heart, address it. Go to celebrate recovery and root it out of you. See, if you were in a boat, okay? Say you're in a boat and you're heading to Tokyo. And about 10 miles out, you know, from from where you started, the captain says, oh, look, there's a leak in the boat. But hey, don't worry. It's just a small leak. I'll get you to Tokyo. Get off that boat. Get off that boat because that boat is certainly going to sink you. Don't ignore even the smallest sin. Then just as the verse says, fill that void with righteous living, with serving, with loving others, and inviting the accountability and encouragement of godly friends who will strengthen you in Christ. And then next, Paul tells us to rely on the Holy Spirit, to live in union with Jesus. Rely on the Holy Spirit. You see, it's our direct personal interaction with Jesus through the Holy Spirit that transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, as we behold the glory of the Lord, the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we're changed into His glorious image. Our union with Jesus and with one another through the Holy Spirit is what the Bible refers to as our new nature. It's it's our new life. Colossians 3.10-14. Paul went on, he says this. He says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender mercy Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Making allowance for each other's faults and forgiving anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. 
And we can look at this list that Paul wrote, and we can say, okay, here's my list. Let's get started. What do I do first? But that's not at all what Paul's saying here. The first thing that he said is so important before any of this, and he says, put on your new nature. Put on your new nature. You know, if I uh, go to a zoo, and I sit in front of the lion cage, and I tell the lion all about the new way of peaceful living, and give him some great points, and he listens, but then I go and I stick a lamb in his cage, you know, when that lion gets hungry, we all know what's going to happen. There will be no change in that lion. He will not peacefully lie down with that lamb until his nature is changed. Living in our new nature is in our connection with God and one another. That is the key. That is the key to experiencing unity and forgiveness and supernatural love with one another. So how, again, being practical, do we do that? First point here is to walk in the spirit by faith. To walk in the spirit by faith. Now, to walk in the Spirit is to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, to come, to, to fill us, to guide us, and help us walk with Him by faith. Galatians 5.16 tells us, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Dallas Willard, um, he said this about the Holy Spirit, and it's great. It says, this all-powerful Creative personality, the promised strengthener, gently awaits our invitation to him to act upon us, with us, and for us. The presence of the Holy Spirit can always be recognized by the way he moves us toward what Jesus would be and do. And when we inwardly experience the heavenly sweetness and the power of life, the love, joy, and peace that Jesus knew... That is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. When our deepest attitudes and our dispositions are those of Jesus, it's because we've learned to let the Spirit foster Jesus' life in us. See, walking in the Spirit is something that doesn't necessarily you know, come natural to us. But what's exciting is that there are things that we can do to train ourselves to live in a greater submission to the Holy Spirit so that he can help us in this connection to Jesus. And that's this next point. And that's to practice spiritual habits that give God room to work in your life. This process of, of, of putting off sin and clothing ourselves with our new nature, it's supercharged when we engage in spiritual habits that creates space for the Holy Spirit to mold us. And, uh, you know, there's a great book that I read years ago and I picked up several times since then called The Spirit of Disciplines. It's by Richard Foster. I recommend it. And he talks about a couple of categories of spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits. One are spiritual disciplines of abstinence, uh, of things that we withdraw from, okay? And uh, these can include things like solitude, habits of solitude, and silence, and fasting, and sacrifice. And what these do is they help us to remove destructive forces in our life by causing us to stop and to wait and to eliminate so that we detach from sin and we connect and find ourselves solely dependent upon God. And he also talks about these, these disciplines called dis disciplines of engagement 
And again, what these are are habits that help strengthen the Spirit's influence in our life. They're habits of like studying God's Word and worship and prayer and service, fellowship and submission. And when we engage in these habits, again, what they do is they help engage us with the Holy Spirit so that we connect to Jesus and they transform our character. And so as an example, say we're just being unkind. <laughs> and we go through a period of just unkindness because we're busy. You know, we're at a frantic pace. So many things going on. Then like a, a day retreat of silence and solitude is so good for us where we can detach and kind of discover that the world still turns while we're not involved and engaged with it. Life goes on without us. That's very helpful for us to realize. And then spending some time with God in that time to meditate on verses where Jesus can teach us about kindness. Romans 12, 2 tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. And, and we're renewed by the washing and regeneration of God's word. And so disciplines of, of reading and studying and meditating upon and memorizing God's word are so powerful to fill us with God's power and his presence and his perspective. And by taking these personal actions, you see, so many times we focus on the duties of what we have to do, but if we change our whole perspective about it and look at these things as means of ways to engage with the Spirit and allow the Spirit to connect us to Christ, then what happens is we become something that we never could do on our own. <laughs> and then last, Paul encourages us to receive and display the life of Jesus within you. And so again, just kind of summarizing all this, as we center our minds and hearts on Christ, as we detach ourselves from sin, as we follow the Holy Spirit and we fill our lives with God's word, interact with Jesus in prayer and other habits, then the natural result of that is this sweet communion and unity with Jesus where we become receivers. In Colossians 3, 15 to 17, Paul expresses that. He says, and let the peace that comes from Christ, rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as representatives of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ functioning within the connection of Jesus and one another in unity. And there's this peace and gratitude and wisdom and support for one another. There's celebration. And there's the life of Jesus being expressed to others through his people. And so how do we get there? Again, there's a few practical points. One, invite and embrace Jesus' peace, his word, and his authority. We freely receive his grace and his peace and direction, and we live as his representatives in his authority. You know, Paul said, you know, and all we say and do, do it in Jesus' name. You know, for us, when we think about somebody's name, um, you know, we think about, oh, I, I'm Bob, you know. And so that's they're kind of their label. That's who we know them as. But in this culture, which we need to understand because that's the true meaning of it, when someone said it's their name, it, it referred to the person's very nature, their persona, their qualities and power, 
when a prophet in the Old Testament spoke in the name of the Lord, they were under the commission of God. Those were his words. They were authoritative. And so when we're called to go out and, and to act and to do and to speak in the name of Jesus, it's as if we are under the commission to be Jesus to our world and that we're united to him and that Jesus is with us and his presence is there as we do so. And in that way, we display the character of Christ. And there's no greater compliment than to hear someone say that we look like Jesus, right? And uh, it has nothing to do with having long hair and really cool sandals. It's the idea that they can see God's love and his grace and his compassion, his forgiveness in our life. The disciples, Peter and Paul, or Peter and John, had this said about them. And it is a beautiful description in Acts 4.13. It says, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. But they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Ordinary people who reflected Jesus. And that's the beautiful plan of God that we're fortunate to be a part of. You know, there's a, a story of a, a group of Navy SEALs that were on a covert operation uh, to rescue a, a group of hostages who'd been taken captive in a very dark place of the world, and these hostages were in a building. And so the Navy SEALs came into the cover of night, and they landed in a very quiet helicopter, and, and then they came to this room, and they barged open the door, and the hostages just gasped and clung to one another in a corner, and they were terrified. And the Navy SEAL stood at the door and said, come with us, we're Americans, follow us to freedom. And the captives had been there for several months and their minds weren't clear and they were terrified with fear and they just cast their eyes down and held to each other and gripped in fear. And the Navy SEALs stood in the doorway not knowing what to do. I mean, they couldn't carry each one of them one at a time out of the room and get out in time. And then there was one of the seals that laid down his weapon, took off his helmet, and he walked to the corner of the room and he sat down into that huddle and grabbed hold of them and just stayed with them there. And then slowly eyes came up as he held them and they looked at him eye to eye and he whispered, We're Americans. We're here to rescue you. Come with us. And then the soldiers stood up. And then one of the hostages stood up. And then another. And then another. And they were rescued together. And they were freed. And you see, this is what Jesus did for us. He came into this world to be one of us so that we could be like him. And so do your part. Do your part to become like Jesus because the world really, really needs you. Let's pray. Lord God, it's amazing. It's incredible that you love us enough to come to earth, to dwell in human form, to love us, to die for us, and to invite us 
be united with you and to be your representatives in this world. God, put in us a desire to do our part, to become like you, to cooperate with, we know it's your will, to cooperate with your spirit, to do this work of transformation in us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.